Hello everyone, bonjour tout le monde and welcome to Concordia University's Fourth Space. Thank you for joining us for today's panel conversation centered around decarbonizing Canadian buildings, whereby we'll explore the current state of decarbonization efforts in Canada's building sector and the challenges that must be overcome in order to meet the country's emissions reduction targets. Very quickly to help situate you, we you're joining us online or in person from Fourth Space. We are streaming this panel conversation live to YouTube from Fourth Space, which is located on unceded indigenous lands here in Jojage, Montreal. As caretakers for the lands and waters that we're meeting on, we'd like to extend our gratitude to the Kanyankahaga Nation for their teachings about the earth and our relations. If you're unfamiliar with the space that you've just walked into uh, online or in person, uh, what we do here is work with our university community to mobilize and exchange knowledge by co-creating daily activities. And we have the pleasure to, of working with Concordia University public scholars as well. So to that end, today we're so happy to welcome in your moderator and doctoral candidate in building engineering, excuse me, Mustafa Saad into the space. And thank you, Mustafa, for bringing together this great panel of experts who will be introduced shortly. That's it for me. Over to you, Mustafa. Welcome. Hello, everyone. Uh, good afternoon. And welcome to this panel discussion uh, on decarbonizing Canadian buildings, obstacles and opportunities. Uh, so uh, basically, I'm Mustafa, a doctoral researcher at Gina Cody School for Engineering and a public scholar of Concordia University for this year. And I'm very happy uh, today to, to have uh, to be the moderator for this topic. Uh, so mainly, I'll start by a thesis to introduce the topic. Uh, as I've mentioned, we will be talking today about decarbonizing Canadian buildings and the obstacles and opportunities that lie ahead in this topic. Uh, as we are all aware, the issue of climate change is one of the most pressing challenges facing our world today. Uh, it's a global problem that requires global solutions, and the building sector has a significant role to play in reducing uh, carbon emissions and contributing to a more sustainable future. Uh, Canada, as a developed country, has a responsibility to lead the way in reducing its carbon footprint. The building sector is responsible for a large portion of the country's emissions, and it's imperative that we take action to decarbonize our buildings. You might no not know it, but uh, buildings we live, work, and play in uh, are actually respons responsible for a large portion of the carbon emissions that we release yearly. In fact, actually in 2019, the building sector accounted for 12% of the country's total greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, that's on uh, a, uh, like the country scale, uh, but if we go to municipalities, it's much higher than that. Uh, that's why it's so important that we take action to decarbonize our buildings. But it's not just up to government to make this happen. We, are, we all have roles to play here. Uh, that's why it's so important that we work together, industry, government, academia, and you and me actually. So, however, this is no easy task and there are, are many obstacles to overcome if we are to achieve our goals, such as cost, technical gaps or time. Uh, but as with any challenge, there is also a lot of opportunities that lie ahead. In this panel discussion, we will explore the obstacles and opportunities associated with decarbonizing Canadian buildings. Our expert panelists will share their insights and experiences on this critical issue. And we will discuss what needs to be done to overcome the obstacles and seize the opportunities. So our guests on this panel each bring uh, our uh, like their unique background experiences on the discussion regarding decarbonizing Canadian buildings. Uh, we have four of very notable experts in the field, uh, starting from Ursula Eicher from Concordia University and the Canada Excellence Research Chair for Smart, Sustainable and Resilient Cities. 
Matt Carlson, Decarbonization Lead from Arrow, Edgar Lopez, uh, Director of Engineering from Odette, Lafaf Azuz from uh, Deloitte, Senior Manager of ESG and Decarbonization in Deloitte. Uh, so now I'll leave the floor for, for each of our panelists to give more of the context of how uh, their role in decarbonizing buildings within their teams and their companies uh, or research institutes. And let, uh, maybe let's get your perspective of what is the biggest challenge that you see to decarbonize our built environment. So I'll start with Ursula and we can go uh, around the table. All right. Um, thank you, Mustafa, for the introduction and for the moderation of that panel. Um, well, as, as you know best, the, the team of mainly engineering um, students, but also some architects and urban planners that um, I've built over the last three years um, in the frame of this Canada Excellence Research Chair works to a large extent on um, decarbonization topics, not just of buildings, but also of um, transport, because that's the other big contributors and and trying to close loops in, in the waste streams. So it's because it's not just about carbon, it's also about resource use. Um, I mean, one of the challenges is also resource use. So <clears throat> our team tries to, to look at um, urban decarbonization in a, in a pretty comprehensive way. But um, my, my background is building physics, so I'm, I'm most close to the building um, sector and probably know most what, what is possible. And having spent um, most of my active life in, in Europe and Germany um, especially, um, coming here was quite a change of culture, I would say. Um, there's a lot of... Uh, Lots of um, not just experiments, but but for sure pilot projects, and and then sort of a start of rollout of um, zero carbon buildings going on in in Germany and and Europe, and I would even say the leads are probably more the, the Scandinavian countries. Um, and and coming here, um, I noticed that it's not enough to talk just about. Carbon, because here, especially here in Quebec, we have the privilege of having a, a decarbonized electricity system. So very often, when I uh, talk to real estate uh, people, they say, "Well, it's pretty easy. We just switch fuels, and then we are zero carbon." And <clears throat> which is true. So there's nothing, nothing wrong with that. And um, for sure, it's it's uh, one one way to go, um, or it's probably the way to go to to electrify. The building energy supply, but of course, electricity is not infinite. And I think the debate is just starting in Quebec um, that uh, politicians on all levels, and not just hydro Quebec, um, are, are getting aware that the, 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 even the sort of abundant Quebec is running out of um, renewable energy supply. So either it will be new dams or it will be uh, hopefully a much more diverse mix of renewables. But so we're talking, um, I think in this whole decarbonization debate, we're not just talking about um, simply moving to a, <clears throat> a zero carbon um, supply, uh, renewable supply, but also providing enough um, renewable supply for all sectors. And, and if you take it into account transportation, which is the other third of, of a consumption of, of a city typically, we, we all know that there's not just enough um, 
clean fuels available today. So that's where we come back to, to the building sector and building efficiency. So I think my main take in this first round would be um, it's not enough to, um, to, to switch fuels. We really need to tackle energy efficiency in, in the building sector. And as I said, when you, when you see that many buildings here are still heated by, by baseboard heaters, direct heating, no heat pump use, it's a, it's a waste of the precious resource electricity. And I think we need to do a lot on, on the sort of energy system side to, to make the systems much more efficient, but also think of the building envelope because it's, it's always the cheapest option, at least to insulate your roofs and basements and if the facades can be tackled um, to do that as well. So I think it's a, it's a mixture of, of going for efficiency first, managing the energy then well, and, and of course, um, providing the rest with renewables. And I think, I guess on all levels, there are barriers to it. It's, it's expensive to retrofit envelopes. So I guess we will come back to all these topics of how to finance the transition. And yeah, thank you. As a, <clears throat> as a passive house consultant, I, you're, you're speaking my language, for sure. Um, I work for a, a company called Arup. We are a multidisciplinary engineering firm in the the building and infrastructure space so um i think i think one of the things that differentiates us is our commitment to advocating for sustainable practices in design <clears throat> and there, there's a lot of ways to do that because we've, we've got a lot of disciplines but um as one example we have <clears throat> a couple of years ago committed to doing an lca a life cycle assessment um, on every project that we do, every large project, whether or not that is something that the, the client is asking for uh, or part of our scope. So we are building a database of, um, of embodied carbon and life cycle carbon of, of our projects with you know, the, the purpose of, of benchmarking and you know, eventually informing our, our decarbonization strategies, ways to reduce whole life carbon on our, our projects. Um, you know, our involvement in C40 Cities and Ellen MacArthur Foundation, those kind of, those kind of projects are, I think, um, sort of a sign of our commitment to sustainability. My, my own role at Arup is, as decarbonization lead, is, um, is in the energy and sustainability group. Um, <clears throat> so we're sort of a a collection of engineers doing doing various things, but um, uh, it is uh, mostly in the space of energy master planning, energy modeling for buildings uh, or for portfolios, either for new construction to, to try to make efficient um, low carbon buildings or um, in the retrofit space, which is which is really the you know the, the complicated uh, part of the sector. So um, you know coming up with decarbonization. Um, strategies, roadmaps, you know, getting to net zero, whatever over, you know, by some certain point coordinated with, you know, a building's capital plan and <laughs> the, the sort of budgets available to, to spend on them. So it's, it's quite a, you know, that, that's really the difficult piece. The new construction piece is, is, you know, almost sorted out. Um, and, and there really is no pathway to, a zero carbon future without going through all of our existing buildings, basically, and we've we've got a lot of them. That's, you know, even by 2050, the ones standing today are still going to be 
representing the the bulk of our emissions if we if we don't do anything about them. Um, so so that's the gist of it, I guess. You know, we also touch on uh, uh, you know master planning of of things outside of buildings, airports, uh, rail. Um, we do certifications. Uh, passive house as well as zero carbon building standard. Those are kind of our our two faves, and uh, and I'll leave it there. Thank you, Mustafa, for having us. Uh, I'm very happy to be here. And uh, as I said, I'm the senior decarbonization engineer at Audet. Uh, my background is um, been primarily in the energy efficiency space and built environment, uh, approximately 15 years, bouncing around between demand side management for utilities, um, energy management for commercial real estate, as well as a uh, energy consulting, the more traditional energy audit, uh, property condition assessment, energy modeling space. Um, at Audet, uh, how I see uh, my role in the, in, in the team uh, that we have, um, how it fits into trying to solve the problem of um, decarbonizing the, the building stock is uh, identifying that uh, there's a lot of uh, building owners that want to do something and often they don't know what to do. So they, they reach out to uh, energy consulting companies and, and this process is often slow. You go through a building the traditional style, collect a bunch of information about the building, take a lot of photos, go back to an office, put it all in a spreadsheet or an energy model, and then you provide the owner with a, with a static snapshot of the building, so or like a PDF. Um, and so then um, this doesn't scale very well if, if you wanted to create a carbon reduction plan for every building. So this is what Audet is trying to do, create a carbon reduction plan for, for every building by uh, using technology to leverage the impact of the energy consulting sector and trying to um, uh, bring the, the space of carbon retrofitting to scale. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Afaf. I'm Afaf Azuza. I'm a senior manager uh, at Deloitte. I'll start with a bit of history of my career. Um, I used to work uh, very much on the engineering side prior to Deloitte, still do uh, at Deloitte. But I, my background, I'm a building performance engineer. Um, I specialize in everything energy efficiency, decarbonization of new construction and uh, retrofit uh, buildings. Um, and I started my career as an energy modeling specialist um, in doing some of the things you guys have mentioned too. And, and so I think that gave me a very good insight into how complex building systems can be, how many people you have to talk to, because in Canada they certified me as a building performance engineer just because they didn't know what specialty I'd be. So uh, I guess we're in the right space here today because it's, you know, we, we know about building engineering and it's a new up and coming kind of discipline because you would have to speak, to be able to speak to an electrical engineer, a structural engineer about embodied carbon, um, you know, electrical engineer about renewable energy, a mechanical engineer about all their HVAC systems, and obviously an architect about all the envelope considerations, and then be able to guide the entire team into a succinct, sustainable solution, and then convince them with the budget associated with the, uh, with the entirety of, of the project. Um, so there's a lot of competing uh, priorities in our field, and I know everyone sitting on this table and everyone sitting here as well knows about those. Um, when I moved to, so, so in my engineering life prior to Deloitte, um, I was very much focused on a building on a building scale. I worked with multiple public sector and private sector clients. Um, but moving to Deloitte, uh, I think was a really interesting career shift in a sense that I'm now more focused on portfolio management and I see 
the additional complexities that come with retrofitting, um, you know, portfolios of companies, because oftentimes it's not just about a building. And where I came from a background where I thought buildings are the most important things, they have like a hundred other things they need to prioritize. And sometimes buildings are only 5% of their entire greenhouse gas emission um, inventory. So it becomes, but at the same time, they are living in them, they're operating them. Sometimes they're leasing them, sometimes they're owning them. Um, so so the needless to say, the multifaceted nature of, of this discipline has, has um, I guess, uh, enlarged in my in my uh, in my spectrum when looking at portfolios of companies that have aviation or fleets or cities to manage or whatever right transport um, uh, investments even to manage and suppliers etc um, I'd say one of the biggest challenges just responding looping it back to your uh, second question is I would say awareness I know everyone's talking everyone knows what ESG is kind of uh, it's such a big buzzword these days. Everyone knows about like climate change, and again, that's a buzzword. Um, but I, I find that it's um, when they start saying, "Oh, let's do something about it," I find that half the time um, they're not really uh, poking into the right fields. So they always just look at one aspect, like carbon, which again Ursula talked about, is not the right approach. And uh, yeah, I'll, let's stop here. So. Thank you. I am very honored to, to be moderating this session after listening to all this introductions. And thank you for, for talking about the, uh, your role and also what are the, the obstacles or the opportunities that you see lying ahead, because that would be the topic of, uh, of today's session from electrification of the grid and the opportunity that lies ahead to it or the slot adoption and scaling and using technology for that or uh, portfolio management and priorities that come for building decarbonization and how awareness uh, is important and we need to walk the talk and not just talk the talk. So, uh, so I, during the session, we're going to be going through different points and each point I put like roughly 10 minutes for it. So I'm going to be suggesting like, uh, like someone to, 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 start with the discoursing like his idea or to, uh, saying his idea about it and then uh if someone wants to to add to that feel free uh to 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 it so uh, uh we're going to be starting by obstacles uh i will i'll first want to talk about uh, national energy building codes uh so they play a crucial role in setting the standards of energy efficiency in buildings and can have a major impact on decarbonization of the building sector so, however, as we work to decarbonize the building sector, it's also important to talk about how effective these codes uh, have been in promoting low carbon construction or transformation of current existing buildings and retrofits. Uh, and does the national building code uh, that was recently released in 2020 with its tiered system, does it have uh, a solution for this or a breakthrough for this? So uh, I might be, I will be starting with the FF, if you can, can give us your insight about this. Absolutely. I'm not going to single out the National Energy Code 2020, so <laughs> I'll try and be as politically correct as possible. Um, so I think codes are just catching up with the entire movement. So I think I would argue that a lot of the professionals, a lot of the companies are, and especially the specialists, like they're already like four or five um, a couple of years ahead than the codes. So I think the codes are catching up, but I'm a firm, firm believer in the fact that codes are the only way 
um, you know, the stick or the carrot. I'm a firm believer that, you know, the codes are actually the, the one of the, the most effective ways to get people to change uh, what they need to change. The tiered system um, is definitely helpful. So I, I think that is definitely a good start. But the codes are not comprehensive yet to include like things like climate risk or designing around climate risk or designing around embodied carbon uh, or designing around uh, a just transition or how you're addressing social aspects. But the, like I said, the codes are catching up. Um, also, the codes aren't 100% clear on what exactly you're doing for a retrofit building, since that's the scope of our discussion today. Codes are great for new construction, which are a tiny piece of our uh, of our uh, building stock. They're not so great when you're thinking about, other than a major retrofit, that's where a code could play a big role. But when you're thinking about building operators or managers or owners that have I don't know, they are just retrofitting HVAC one step at a time. Whenever it dies out, they, ch they change out the system. Uh, that is stuff that the code doesn't really cover as extensively. So it doesn't give them guidance on, okay, yeah, like I can just do a like for like replacement and no one's going to tell me anything. Uh, but if it mandates, starts mandating things like, no, you cannot, and you have to have a stepped plan or you have to submit something in advance of a, of a, of a replacement, even if it's minor, because that's the only way buildings are going to be retrofitted. No one has the capital to do like the major retrofits. So I might stop here and give some other people the chance to speak. Would, uh, would, would you want to tell us like some of the experiences in Europe about, about this, Ursula? Uh, so I think it's pretty similar to what, what you said for here. I mean, I think there's always a certain fear of uh, attacking retrofit because that concerns everybody. And of course, politically, it's, it's much more challenging of saying, well, when I mean, you've got a house, you bought it under certain premises and now you need to, you need to retrofit it because the code does it. So no, it, it's exactly the same situation. Very, very, there are some minimum standards, um, but they're, they're really minimum. So there's no way um, as, as hard as the, the progressive building codes for new construction have been that really go towards a very high efficiency, nearly passive standard building as far as the envelope is concerned, at least. So, so I think the situation is the same. And, and it is, it's of course, a problem of, uh, of, of forcing every building owner, whatever the size is, to, to really improve the situation. And I think the one way um, cities are dealing with that, so if the code doesn't do it, um, of saying, let's, let's start monitoring consumption and um, making the consumption transparent and then sort of putting caps on, predictable caps. I think that's probably important for, for the business side of, of things that you know in advance this will come in a few years. And so it's, and, and I, you better prepare and, and plan your investments if you know your consumption needs to reduce by 2% every year or citywide consumption needs to reduce. And that's a good way to go and where municipalities have some some say and can, can do bylaws on um, on trying to enforce consumption reduction. I think the, the key is really to make it predictable and, and you, you can't change it from one day to the other. So it's, it's because, as you said, there's a lot of money involved. In and the initiative that I think Montreal is adopting and, and has been done in Europe where you, you grade energy efficiency of buildings and make that public, <clears throat> that I think is is important and will go a long way to 
you know, for lack of better word, shaming us into, into doing something, right? I mean, if it becomes public knowledge and, you know, as we build new buildings closer and closer to, to net zero, um, the old building stock becomes more and more stranded if it's inefficient more inefficient it is so you want you want to kind of keep up with that it is very difficult to force building owners to you know do retrofits that are outside of what they were going to do otherwise um, there is an initiative with the NRC right now to come out with a um, an alterations to existing buildings version of the NECB the National Energy Code for Buildings so that is being developed right now um, we're you know doing meetings every couple of weeks to discuss different elements and um it's complicated right i mean <clears throat> as, as much as you want to simplify it there are always cases where uh things get complicated always so you know that's a difficult way to force things to happen but um it is necessary but i think that it's probably not fast enough you know by the time that the provinces and municipalities adopt you know national codes it's it's years down the road and and i think we all know that this decade is the most important i mean today is the most important tomorrow is the next most important and, and we can't really wait until 2050 to do all these things so um getting stuff done and, and figuring out how to do that and i think ultimately it comes down to the price on carbon needing to to be there and i th i think We've started down that road. Who knows where the political winds will take us? If they take us in the wrong direction, it, it'll derail, you know, all this, all this effort that this industry um, <clears throat> has done to date, because that's really ultimately what, you know, justifies or makes a business case. Um, and a business case is kind of what you need. And, and we're, we're kind of accustomed in the industry to, to trying to, um, promote long life cycle thinking so you know think about you know a 50-year lifespan or or more and then these things start to make sense but the reality is we actually don't have that much time anymore so we need to try to think of you know what can we do that makes sense in the next 10 20 years and it still has to make business sense for when we're talking about uh, existing buildings, right? So that's where the price of carbon, I think, is is key. You know, that is going to fundamentally drive business decisions, um, whether it's it's you know today or just forecasting for tomorrow. You're not replacing like for like if it's burning natural gas because ten years time, that's that's not going to make sense for your your operating costs. So I think that's that's a big one, and that's that's really where your last point leads, like. We can't do tens of thousands of buildings in the next decade or two. Like we need to be doing thousands of buildings a day. We need a very uh, scalable way to do that, to analyze that, to come up with solutions because we're, we're just like nibbling around the edges right now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm also a little bit of a, a code skeptic. It's all sort of implicitly telling you the worst building you can build. And uh, <laughs> yeah, well, in, but without having a, a projection of future changes on a code, then you're, you know, what, even if it's a progressive uh, code that requires a certain minimum standard, that it's locking in that energy um, or the equipment that goes into the into that into the construction of that building for the life of that piece of equipment. Say a boiler, thirty years. So even if the the, the code was saying that you can only install condensing boilers, 
uh, then you install that boiler and then that's there for 30 years. Uh, so things like, uh, like a BC step code, when you're looking at performance standards, that you can look ahead so that uh, real estate owners can do some long-term capital planning on, on what piece of equipment can be replaced and when. And so with things like, uh, say in BC in 2026, you can't install heating equipment that has a COP less than one, then all of a sudden your like-for-like -like scenario changes, which can improve the metrics that you're going, uh, that you're going to be analyzing, say, a heat pump retrofit with. Um, yeah, so uh, when it comes to, uh, to codes, uh, they need to either uh, look forward or have uh, alternative mechanisms for motivation, uh, like uh, I was saying, uh, carbon taxes. Perfect, thank you. Uh, actually, that leads us to, to, to my second point uh, to, to discuss about uh, the different policy levels that we have like, between federal and provincial. And as you gave the example of the BC step code, and uh, I wanted to propose like the question of like this, uh, the fragmented policy or the fragmented uh, type of um, a type of, uh, of code development or adoption. Uh, does it actually uh, represent a barrier that we, we have like in, in, in uh, full scale decarbonization or uh, a national level decarbonization if we're not talking about certain province or a certain city? Uh, for speeding up this decarbonization efforts all over uh, the country. So maybe we can we can start from where we we ended, like because yeah, I give like the example of of uh, the BC step code as well. Yeah, so it, it is sort of fragmented. There's uh, very different rules in every province, and and, and nationally with the, with the carbon tax, I think it's currently at fifty or sixty five dollars a ton, uh, and it's often reflected in the bills. Uh, they have a little section on, on the, the utility bill that's uh, the portion of the carbon tax and uh, when that's going up um, when you're doing a say a future looking analysis when instead of using you know today's metrics like the cost of utilities today the emissions intensity of today rather look at uh, you know the the average emissions intensity as well as the um, uh, the average utility costs over the life of a, of a project then sort of suddenly the metrics uh, start looking looking better but in um, when it comes to individual provinces, uh, some of the challenges I've seen speaking to um, real estate owners, um, they're doing, they're aware that they need to retrofit their buildings. And so start doing some assessments. They're, they're going out and getting ESCOs to do some energy audits and uh, try to estimate how much it's going to cost to retrofit their buildings. And, and in some areas where you have a higher emissions intensity, the cost of the retrofit becomes higher. It, the, the metrics are not working out great in their favor. So they're looking to dispose of their properties in those areas. So that's sort of adding pressure to that particular province uh, or region or municipality to try to bring up uh, their standards so that uh, they can continue to get investment. So the, the like my, maybe like my follow-up question would, would it be like, uh, uh, more of like the role of uh, developing, uh, promoting like uh, more uh, restricting codes in in uh, in very high polluting uh, or high uh, carbon intense grids or locations. Uh, what does it does it like make um, make it more more popular in in these locations to to uh, to adopt these codes or adopt higher tiers of the code that was developed? So, 
Um, yeah, perhaps I can start. I'm not a policy expert, that's for sure. But I think it's very hard like, to, to just say, can, can it ever not be fragmented? So I think it will always be fragmented and we'll have to work within the challenges of the fragmentation, unfortunately. Similar to what you were saying, like, yes, that's where people try to divest, but also it's where people try to put their money to do renewable energy projects right now. So the amount of investment that's going into Alberta and all the polluting uh, provinces with regards to RECs, like renewable energy certificates, or virtual power, uh, power purchase agreements, which are a more robust way of investing into uh, renewable energy projects, is also massive. Because as a consequence, yes, maybe they, may, maybe, that maybe Alberta was like one of the, not the first one to adopt a national energy code or when they adopted, they didn't adopt the latest version. Uh, and, and then like Ontario maybe was faster or BC was faster, uh, but eventually they've all adopted it. And yes, it is potentially the worst building you can build, but it's forcing people to start to think about these considerations, even if you're working with a very uh, dirty uh, electricity grid. And so you, you have to work with your constraints. And I, I find that there are overarching overarching fundamentals of how to retrofit a building or how to build a building that should be, yes, ideally standardized. Because it, it, the function, there's an abatement hierarchy. It goes from load reduction, like reduce whatever you're doing first, and then, you know, act passive strategies like envelope, uh, you know, all, all, the, all the reductions that cost zero money in terms of like your building actually sheltering from, from, from you needing to heat or cool, and then the active strategies. And then only at the very bottom, you start thinking about renewable energy and, and very, very bottom about offsets, uh, if at all. So I would say that that is there in all the provinces, although it's not being implemented the right way. Um, and, but also at the same time, the flip side is yes, there is as a consequence of it being so dirty there is a lot more investment in those specific, uh, outside of the policy, I'd say there's a lot more investment in those specific provinces because they have to catch up faster uh, so that these, these projects might actually help, you know, increase awareness around, okay, what can you do in, in different kinds of grid electricity, uh, grid carbon intensities. Unintended benefit to having it fragmented, um, which is that, you know, certain municipalities or provinces who have decided that they want to do better become the, you know, they're, they're not shackled by whatever the, the national code says, they're just doing their own thing. And so, you know, Vancouver and BC and uh, the city of Toronto and, and Montreal have been sort of leading the way with uh, step code and, and Toronto Green Standard and, and uh, the new uh, programs being rolled out in this city. So, that is something you might not see otherwise, I think, if, if it wasn't, you know, fragmented in that way. So I think those, those provinces and those municipalities are, are becoming um, maybe leaders that the other provinces want to emulate, or at least, hopefully, um, it all sort of comes down to, to politics ultimately. So uh, you never know which way it's going to go. But in Ontario, we have very unfortunately just had... Uh, Bill C-23 passed through, which sort of takes away municipalities' ability to have their own um, special energy code, right? Like the Toronto Green Standard, for example, which has been very effective, I think. New construction only, of course, at least for now, there are plans for, for rolling out a retrofit program. It's just um, not that easy, and, and COVID sort of derailed uh, that progress. But um, so that's, you know, that's very unfortunate news, but 
that's that's not happening here anyway, which is nice. Uh, actually, the idea of competition between municipalities or provinces for developing higher building codes that actually sounds very promising and i hope yeah like the like especially in montreal the the recent uh, regulation of uh, new construction from 2025 20, uh, i believe uh, will all have to be uh, zero carbon emissions and i'm not, I'm not sure like if it was operational carbon or uh, embodied carbon as well uh, but uh, but i totally agree about the competition that the fragmented policy has like maybe two sides of uh, of uh, of benefit pros and cons. So the pros are the the high competition. I think mostly for for investments that would like risk free regarding uh, carbon emissions would be able to to move towards places or locations that have uh, adopted higher standards for for carbon emissions or lowering carbon emissions. So I totally agree. Uh, and maybe just to add, I mean, I think we already discussed that the, the code is basically the minimum. So, of course, if, if everybody would need to agree, it would be even more minimum. And so, so I think that that is. Um, I think it, it's it's time to look more for for the front runners and what the incentives are. And I think there's there's uh, especially from the the financial markets, there's increasing opportunities for companies who who do pretty aggressive decarbonization um, strategies with much easier access to capital. And I mean, I'm not a specialist in, in that topic, but I've, I found it pretty convincing to hear that there's only a very limited number of companies. I think it was the number was 1,600 or so um, that that have a, um, a zero carbon um, strategy. They just now they find it so much easier to get access to capital. I think it, this will probably hopefully exert a much bigger pull of the market of saying, if, if you, you are amongst the first to, to fully decarbonize, um, you get better access to, um, to impact investors and, and other, all kinds of investment um, budgets that allow you to, to um, create these projects that we're all waiting for. Because I think one of the problems is we, yeah, there's a lot of talk about decarbonization, but truly ambitious projects, which are which are highly energy efficient, are renewably supplied, I still, I, I don't see many of them. I mean, I, I don't see much solar in, in Montreal, it has more irradiance than Stuttgart, than Germany, but um, I, I haven't really seen much solar projects here. And I mean, Quebec, of course, is a, it's a different, it's not even, it doesn't have the carbon pricing, so it, it's, it's a very different system, but as a result, carbon is not very expensive here. So um, I think it's, it's, Probably time that we talk about um, more the incentives or how how can companies sort of move ahead without because the code I totally agree will catch up but will probably not be the leader in in sort of bringing the change fast enough. Yeah, thank you. I actually that would lead us like to 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 the point of the slow adoption that we have like oh. maybe like understood through the lines here through the the, the last discussions. And I, I would like to discuss like the problem of slow adoption from two aspects, from maybe the, the policy side uh, through the accelerator in initiative uh, that uh, Ursula has initiated, and also from the technical side that Edgar has mentioned in the beginning of, of his uh, presentation and beginning of introduction about the technical side of how slow uh, 
developing uh, sustainable transitions for for multiple buildings or on scale uh, is actually a problem and we're not able to adopt uh, sustainable transitions very quickly because of this uh, this technical problem or like data problem. So first, maybe we, if you can tell us more about the, the accelerator initiative, and then we go to the technical side. Yeah, I mean, Montreal, as, as many cities, has a 2030 plan to, to decarbonize. Um, I mean, one, one initiative was this uh, zero emission um, regulation for, for new build. Um, but in the end, um, especially talking about retrofit, um, we, we, we analyzed the situation and saw that um, there's not many projects happening that fulfill the sort of targets that, that we are thinking about. So, um, and then the question is, what are the barriers? Why do projects not get built as to such high efficiency standards than we would like to see? Um, and there's, of course, multiple barriers. It's uh, um, financial barriers, access to capital that, that I mentioned um, before. Um, there might be um, legal issues. There might be um, technical problems or um, limited capacity to know what, what are the best systems in a given situation. And, and so on. So we identified a, a bunch of barriers and in the end said, why don't we get people together who can make decisions um, in each of these sectors, whether it's um, from the municipal side, like faster zoning or permitting processes, um, maybe bonus density, bonus heights, whatever makes a project financially more viable. Um, the finance sector, of course, to provide these sort of um, loans that get better conditions, the more sustainable a project is, um, energy consultants, researchers, and so on. So we had, we sort of founded this team of um, decision makers, let's say, um, and say, we are ready to support projects in, in the sense of analyzing project and suggesting improvements on, on, on the sustainability side and then supporting the process of making it happen. So I, I think that's basically an attempt more on the process side of saying, let's, let's bring all these people together that you need to get a project moving forward faster um, and providing the necessary finance. Um, and let's ask, for us it was a bit of an exercise to first of all, define the criteria, what makes a project better. It's, it's a very sort of vague term. Of course, you could say I, I use certification systems, but there's many, and which one is, is the right one? What do you take into account? Is it just the buildings? No, it's of course also the public spaces, the, the, the way a project deals with mobility, and so on. So I think what, what we try to do is we, we set up this team of, of decision makers. We started an extensive discussion on indicators, which is not trivial. And we're looking now at the first um, project of a private developer um, that we try to support on improving the sustainability and, of course, the, the carbon emissions of, of that project. And we, we hope to, I mean, the first project is always the hardest because you need all this debate on um, amongst very different stakeholders of what, con what do we think is a good project. 
Um, but uh, we hope to do that every couple of months to, to look at a new project. And, and then, of course, there needs to be many teams like that um, to, to scale up. It's just, an, I would say, more an attempt of, of process of saying, how, how can we make it happen? Because I think one of the issues is that it's this whole setting up project um, needs so many stakeholders um, and it takes a lot of time and, and, and thus money. So if we could speed up this process, get the people who, who all look at a project from the different angles together, maybe it speeds it up, saves money, and, and this saved money could be invested in higher um, building efficiency or a lower carbon project. So that's that's the idea. So I'll move from speeding up the stakeholder analysis to speeding up the, the building analysis. So Edgar, like at ODAT, uh, how, how do you overcome this, uh, uh, the heterogeneous typology of buildings and, and developing more of an accelerated method to, to, to just uh, provide a, a transition plan for, for each building on scale? Yeah, so in working with um, the real estate sector, doing discovery, uh, in uh, doing our legacy work um, a more manual way, uh, we discovered that uh, even Class A buildings don't have very good data. So there's, you know, that, that, that problem with data. And, but there is a, a lot of information, whether it's public, private, uh, that exists. It's a, it's a problem of aggregating all this data. So what happens when um, a building wants a retrofit plan uh, and then go through a traditional process. Could be a couple of weeks, could be a couple of months till they get a report. There is a, um, a sense that it, the work process that exists in the consulting industry, it, it, it's just, there's not enough. And even if you accelerate the, the training and number of people to do this exercise, it, it can't get enough of them. And then once you receive that, uh, that information on these are the things that we're going to do, there's the... It, the, the choosing of what what are we going what are which ones of these projects are we going to implement? So the idea of doing a carbon reduction plan rather than an energy audit is to uh, prioritize. So we optimize, or uh, you know, we use uh, data aggregation, some uh, simplified energy modeling uh, based on what we know about your building, and then we present you uh, with a carbon reduction plan, and then we tell you, you know, is this estimate okay? So we're flipping it to them instead of them waiting. Uh, we tell you this is what we think your your, your building looks like. Uh, confirm or add to what we what, what our assumptions are. So it's like a preloaded energy model, uh, and we're also using um, techniques like machine learning to identify um, rooftop equipment to further um, narrow or increase the confidence of our assumptions of so what potentially is in your building, uh, as well as using you know archetypal information. Uh, regional energy use intensities uh, so that we can get a better estimate. And so with that engagement, uh, the more people that, that go through the process of uh, giving us additional information like the utility data for, for calibration or the full equipment list to fully refine the model, uh, it, it creates a flywheel effect so that our, our overall analysis, it, it gets better over time. So that's how we're planning to accelerate the, the creation of carbon reduction plans. If I understand correctly, it's, it's mainly for the preliminary stage of, of, a, of a retrofit and then like it goes like into more of a, a, a deep analysis later on if we're, we're, yeah. if we're talking on on uh, like analyzing on different uh, different stages of in, installing equipment or even on the lifetime of the the building or even a higher level model yeah right. so with uh, what, what you were mentioning about the number of stakeholders that need to be involved there is a lot of 
options and restrictions that exist, uh, things that we look into, uh, like uh, projections for the decarbonization of a particular grid, uh, potential legislation that may exist uh, that might improve performance, um, as well as uh, the you know things like potentially inflation or decreasing cost of certain retrofits. So when you look at all the different variables that, that exist in creating a, a carbon reduction plan, and of course the, the sequencing, and we, we try to adopt the resource-efficient electrification where we, where we go by reducing loads and then finally replace with a right-side heat pump, uh, in speaking of the of heating uh, in general. But um, what, we're, what we're doing is trying to optimize that sequence but by also including things like the life of the equipment. So why not uh, install a heat pump now if you know the boiler might not be near the end of its useful life but preemptively analyze what the load re reduction would be you know the, the envelope reduction you know it's that's far down the road my windows are relatively new uh, my roof is relatively new so uh, i might look into doing heat recovery later as well as the envelope so what if i do those things in the future what size of my heat pump needs to be now and then you can keep your legacy system as backup um, so looking into all the different combinations that exist and giving the user the ability to do scenario planning. Like, well, what if the carbon tax increases and then they're able to do that? Or what if the build of performance standards increase? Uh, what if I have a carbon reduction target? What is the most optimal way in which I can do this? So that's, that's what we're doing. Okay, that's, I mean, it sounds super interesting. And um, I mean, I don't know, at the beginning, at the entry of the hall, there was this tape days this table with the digital model of, um, of Montreal in that case. But in a way, we're trying to build also tools that automate the process. I mean, of saying we know, the, we know a lot of stuff. We know the geometry, of course, of the city. We have archetype information. And, and so, so it would be really interesting to, to exchange on, on the details because in the end, if we could, that's what we're trying to do. You click on a building in that digital model and you get two retrofit scenarios. So, and probably you could get Hundreds. I mean, most of us working on, on also trying to deal with these sort of infinite combinations of in, in time and, and what measures you take. But it would be really interesting to, to have, have a more later, maybe not in this panel, but have a more technical debate on, on how could we advance this tool building and make it easily accessible. To then, of course, the, I mean, this, is, this only can be a sort of first shot. Yeah. And then at some point, some, some person or somebody, a company needs to come in and, and talk, make, make, a, make an offer and, and do the works. But it would be really interesting to, to talk about the methods. Yeah, that sounds yeah. very interesting. I think like we have a lot to talk about after the panel even. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, might, I would like to ask also, Fef, about uh, your work mainly with portfolios. So you have like mostly a lot of, a lot of buildings for one stakeholder. So how does it give more an easier decision-making towards transitioning or lowering the carbon emissions from, from a building? I would argue it, uh, it, it doesn't okay. give an easier... Uh, <laughs> yes, you're right. You're working with one, one company at a time. Um, but like I said, oftentimes they're looking at their entire portfolio that's not just buildings. So... Assuming, assuming it's a real estate developer where buildings is the, the key driver, obviously that's where they will put most of their money. If it's any other type of company, um, then it, they, the focus might be less. So scenario B, where the focus might be less on buildings, I find that they go about it occasionally the wrong way, where they're like, 
oh, yeah, envelope's too expensive. I don't know what is too expensive. This equipment is not at the end of their life. I'm a cynic, but we will talk about opportunities later. Um, and then they, and then, and then they're like, okay, but you know what? Rex or renewable energy certificates are actually quite cheap today and they're going to get more expensive. So how about we just offset that 5% of our entire portfolio of emissions with Rex? And then so, which is exactly the wrong way of going about it. Um, for a case where buildings are contributing a much, much higher um, portion of their greenhouse gas emissions, uh, what we see is, okay, but sometimes they don't own all the buildings. Sometimes there's tenants inside uh, that have various ownership models. Uh, they don't have the right access to capital or still there's like multiple approval processes. Um, and so, so I, I would argue though that if most of, most of the companies we work with, uh, be them private or public, um, are actually in a phase right now where someone was saying like the codes are actually going to be like the front runners, the, the leaders, the incentivizers, the investors, actually, these are the people that are going to push people faster. So, and that's where I see most of the pressure coming from and that's where the faster adoption will come. And so like for those, like most of the companies are like, oh my God, my investor is asking me, what am I doing? They're an, a fund manager where they, you know, build a lot of new buildings or retrofit a lot of new buildings, uh, retrofit a lot of buildings or buy property and then sell it at a different time or operate the property. It doesn't matter what they do, but oftentimes there are different um, ownership and operational schemes in play. But they're like, yeah, someone's up there has asked me what I'm doing about uh, ESG, what I'm doing about climate. And then they're like, okay, but also what, am I peer, what are my peers doing? And so that's another pressure piece that advances a bit the, the slower adoption and makes it a bit of an opportunity. Um, and then there are occasional people. So I'm, I'm maybe talking about the ecosystem of people that are pressuring companies to have a bit of a faster uh, adoption rate. So it would be investors, um, obviously regulation, but it comes a bit slower, uh, although it is coming for, for publicly uh, public uh, companies. Uh, there is now um, a TCFD framework, like a task force on climate related financial disclosures that is forcing all companies to link their climate strategy with their financial strategy to show how they are combating climate and how much climate change is impacting their financials, their value. So all of a sudden there's now this idea of, oh my God, if I don't do anything about climate, I'm, 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 actually, I'm actually in trouble. Um, all goes to say that if it's, is it easier to deal with one stakeholder at a time? Yes, because now the adoption rate is becoming faster because they have these pressures left and right. And they have a, a, um, one mandate of saying, I have to decarbonize my operations and have to be net zero by 2050, but I also have to be um, almost 50% reduced by 2030, which is eight years from now or seven years now from now, which means they have to start now. In portfolio life, sometimes the abatement hierarchy that I was talking about won't take place. So you'll have to be a bit uh, forgiving in, <laughs> in when and how they retrofit, but it will happen because, because of all the pressures that I mentioned. Yeah, thank you. And uh, Matt, do you, do you want to add like to... I was going to say related to the TCFD topic, <clears throat> which is that I think is a very important one, sort of the, the, the top-down forcing of, um, you know, assets to decarbonize. That, I, I guess it only touches on specific sector. 
but nonetheless important because they're usually uh, the biggest buildings. Um, but is the, the Investor Confidence Project, which is uh, something that is just beginning to get popular here. I think it's, it's more popular um, in other jurisdictions, I think, I think maybe in New York and in Europe, but um, it essentially is, is kind of a way to entice private capital for, to, to come into this retrofit market. So it's a, it's a way of kind of standardizing the, the retrofit strategy packages for different buildings, but they don't have to be part of the same portfolio. They can be disparate portfolios. It can be one-offs. It can be whatever you want, but it's, it's an analysis that's done in a standardized way. And you, you basically get a report and, and here's the, the financials of it. And, you know, maybe you're not, maybe a fund isn't interested in investing like $5 million in a project, but maybe they are interested in investing $100 million in all of these projects because the, the risks go down. You know, the, the risk on an individual project of, of the energy going which way, any which way is, um, is much higher than if you've got a, a large set of buildings and, you know, on average, they're probably going to behave the way that's being predicted. You know, there'll be ones that are outside of the range, but on average, you're going to probably get the returns you're expecting. And so, yeah, I'll invest in, you know, these, um, whatever it is, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 buildings. That's, that's, I think, uh, um, a similar kind of strategy, but a, a, a sort of top-down strategy that I think, um, would be we'd be wise to to adopt a little more Canada Infrastructure Bank has um, has started paying attention to that and, and done a couple of projects that way. I think it's I think it's very smart. It'd be nice to see more of that. Perfect. I think like the most heard word during the the last hour was investor financial and so on. So it leads me to to the the last like last obstacle that I would <laughs> like to discuss is actually the financial mechanisms that we have currently available and uh, the options available for, for investors, are they enough or there, there's other means or other uh, solutions to incentivize? And I would, I would start with Ursula because you, you mentioned the financial. Is it enough? It's a difficult question. I don't think it's enough because it's not happening at the rate we want it to happen. So I'm also not so convinced that it's just a question of, of budget, of money. I mean, of course, the, the, the finances need to be accessible, but I think there's also a more fundamental problem of where do we want to go with the retrofits? And as I said, if I, if I compare the, the building performance here with what is now more or less standard in, in Europe, I think we still quite lagging behind and, and this despite being a much harsher climate. So I'm, I'm really a bit, um, a bit shocked in a way at, at how new construction still looks like here and, and what, I mean, sometimes you don't even know what your energy consumption is because you don't pay for it. It's included in the rent. So it's, it's, I mean, so there are financial aspects to it so that the tenants are, are not even aware of what they're consuming because they never see it, especially here in, in these new condos that come pop up everywhere. I mean, if they're for rent. Um, 
but but I also have the impression. I mean, there's sort of legacy ways of doing things in in North America, all air based distribution. I mean, you, you hardly see that in Europe. It's it's just the air. It's just the fresh air supply, and, and that has heat recovery in in buildings. So the passive standard um, is very clear about that. And and I don't see. I, I haven't even seen sort of excellently insulated envelopes. This triple glazing. Uh, and and basically very airtight construction, ventilation with heat recovery. I mean, it, it's pretty obvious what we need to do, but I I, I haven't really seen it in, in many buildings because um, I, I guess the the history or the the tradition of how to to do HVAC here is has evolved in a certain way that where efficiency was never at, at the forefront. So um, so I think in addition to providing the, the money, I think we, we also need to talk a bit about the, the capacity and, and the technical training and, and what what sort of your, your standard HVAC engineer um, knows and is, 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 um, knows how to do. Um, I think that, that to me... I mean, until we see that at, a, at these front runner or the best practice projects popping up to a much higher number where people, where you can actually take people to and say, well, this is an exemplary building that, that fulfills um, the efficiency um, standards that we want to see. I mean, both new and in retrofit. I mean, I mean, you can retrofit also to passive standard building. I think then the, the I mean, I think the, in, in a way, the financing um, part will be solvable because all these projects, over at, at least over the lifetime, they, they pay back. They might have long amortization times, but they, they will pay back um, um, eventually. So, so I think the financing can be organized. But I think we, we should talk a bit about where do we see the, the building stock evolve to? I mean, what, what kind of efficiency standard is really possible and, and doable and what are the best projects you've ever done. I, I would be really interested to, to see that because certainly I, I don't know if I have visitors from Europe, I don't, I don't know I'm building in Montreal where I say, okay, that's where we go to. This is a, a sort of zero emission, um, passive standard, whatever, school. Or, I, I, I'm not aware at least. So I think we still need that. We need these projects that show how it could be done. Yeah, I think once there's a critical mass of, of high performance buildings, then you get got other elements that that sell them so I mean this is this is sort of the the passive house sales pitch in a way like once you've been in one you don't want to you know live in a, a regular co-built house um, and and I think that'll be true for commercial buildings as well I mean you don't want to spend your entire day in a building that's that's not very comfortable and if if you've got the option or if you have the experience of working in a comfortable building living in a comfortable building I mean you know, much more comfortable than than we're used to, especially on the the harshest days. We've got, as you say, much harsher weather here, winter and summer, than continental Europe. Um, then you won't want to go back, and that'll slowly push everybody to want to do that. I mean, if all of a sudden your downtown Class A building becomes kind of a Class B building, <clears throat> you're going to want to retrofit that just to keep up with the Joneses. Um, to maintain your tenants and, and, you know, the same applies to residential buildings, I think, I hope. Um, 
I mean, energy cost is really, I think, the fundamental thing there. The difference between what we do and what they do in Europe is because energy is cheap here and we take it for granted. And we complain when the price goes up, but it's, you know, much, much more expensive in Europe. And so these things are a, a given. You're going to build efficiently. I will, I will go to FF about uh, the pressures that you mentioned. And one of them is the, and the financial pressures. And do you think that this would would just like speed up the 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 process of transitioning? Because personally, like when I was in uh, like last November in COP twenty seven, uh, I I sensed that during the sessions that I that, that I attended, the the financial incentives and the financial mechanisms are the one that can sometimes for for bigger scale to 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 increase the speed? Do you think that or? Yeah, so I was, I was writing down like all the key stakeholders and some of these financial institutions, like who incentivizes today um, some of that faster adoption? And so like banks themselves on a corporate level already have, most of the big banks already have like net zero targets for themselves, which involve their investments. So their scope one, two and three emissions and their scope three emissions is like, where are you going to invest? And if you're going to invest and give money to someone, that is critical. They they're always now looking for the selection criteria. What does it make? What what makes a project good? What makes it uh, financeable? You know, how do we make sure? And and climate is like a small piece out of a hundred other things. But 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 that is going to happen. And and like you mentioned, like Canada Infrastructure Bank is already paying a lot of attention there, and they're financing real estate developers in the in the hundreds of millions of dollars to start retrofitting hundreds of buildings at a chunk. Um, they also have selection criteria associated with that. I think the big piece is like, what is a standardized selection criteria for financing uh, projects? Obviously, governments um, they have left and right incentives when it comes to either like indigenous relationships, promotion, but they have like climate uh, strategy promotion, things like that. So they have, again, that multifaceted promotion of like larger scale projects and then you go again to back to the utilities and how like utilities incentivize like the small homeowners like a few with the demand response programs or with the you know doing an energy audit for free for you and then helping you a little bit think about the uh, the life cycle of your home so the, I think there are multiple tiers of of uh, intervention that are happening right now um, but but and and i personally know a company that uh, goes up to private companies and actually says, hey, like, if you have a portfolio of, it doesn't matter, actually, they do it on a project basis or they do it on a portfolio basis, and they really say, hey, we're in the business of writing checks to people that want to decarbonize their, and, and find energy efficiency solutions, and that's their entire mandate. And then it's the concept of a kind of like an ESCO framework, uh, right? Energy service contracts, and, you know, lots of lots of people are in that business too still. It's an older business, but it's coming back in, in revolutionized ways and methods. So it's like, okay, we'll, we'll take back like the, 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 the cost of the energy savings. And then very last point on like the private companies, when they're going to their boards for approval on like, hey, this is a climate strategy. Either way, we're going to have to address these four or five pillars of um, changes because we might have 
an upgrade to to build to a building or we own a stadium or we own whatever and this this project has to happen but here this is the five percent premium that you'll need to put if you want to decarbonize and here this is the operational savings so oftentimes investors are willing to put that extra five percent because they're already putting hundreds of millions of dollars uh in that so they they will most of the time they will get that approval uh from the board provided there's not other competing priorities but yeah thank you yeah, I have a, an interesting uh, experience from uh, my time in, in commercial real estate as an energy manager. I was in a property management company and we managed properties for a, a number of different building owners. And uh, this particular building owner was um, uh, really all for uh, sustainability. So we developed a few zero carbon warehouses with this, with this owner. But this owner, uh, I, as I understood, was not always um, looking to, uh, to create sustainable infrastructure. So a lot of, of, of building owners tend to be um, you know, pension uh, fund holders mm -hmm. and they compete for additional investments. Mm -hmm. uh, and how we've been doing that recently is uh, through GRESP, the Global Real Estate Sustainability Board, I think it is. Um, and so, you know, they, they tend to put a, a chunk of their money in real estate because it's, it's generally a safe investment mm -hmm. and it has a decent return. But now with the with climate change pressures, um, they start ranking them through GRESP. And so when this particular uh, pension fund lost investment to another pension fund on the basis of not having enough building certifications or uh, performance standards, that's when, that's when it changed for them. So the financial markets are catching up and I think we're, we're coming to an inflection point. I think uh, there's an estimate around uh, the, the cost of retrofitting all existing buildings is, is in, the, in the range of $10 trillion. It's an, an insane amount of uh, movement of capital that will create a lot of economic activity and, and, and it's going to happen fast. So I think it's coming, well, I hope it's coming. Sure, I, I, I hope so. <laughs> I, I totally agree also that, uh, that uh, having this, uh, this different standards like in different buildings would rank those buildings and increase the value also. So it, it doesn't have just the payback period of the, the lower, uh, uh, like the lower energy costs or the lower operation costs, but it also has the, the value increase of the, the building or the asset itself. And uh, that leads us to maybe uh, talk about uh, opportunities here. So uh, I wanted to discuss about um, the opportunity of the movement towards electrifying all buildings. And does it, for the case of, of Quebec, for example, uh, does just switching to the, the fuel type that will be the only thing that we will do for for decarbonizing, or we should like have more proper talk about like we need like to to decrease our demand to accommodate more buildings for this transition. So I'll start with Ursula because you you mentioned that in your in your yeah that's how I started um, the discussion. Um, I mean yeah I think electrification is of course key because there are not that many renewable alternatives. I mean, there will be for sure some contribution of, of biomass-based or hydrogen-based fuels in future, but I mean, I don't know exactly the numbers here, but it, it, I mean, in, in Europe is usually in the order of 10%, in Germany, sort of in highly dense populated countries, I guess here it could be a bit higher, maybe we could be talking about 20% or so. Or maybe even thirty, but but it's it's definitely in the minority. So what what the biofuels um, could contribute, and and they're also needed for other sectors like aviation or um, industrial harder to abate sectors like 
in industrial production. So, um, so I, yeah, I think electrification is is key. But um, as I said, the, there's not enough renewable resources available. I mean, in, in Quebec, it's now 45 percent is electric, very clean, um, but 55 percent are missing. So, so either we build all this. I mean, we need to build extra capacity, but it would be, of course, not the right way just to continue as we're doing just now and, and build all that capacity because it also requires tons of resources um, that might become a, a, an additional challenge. Um, so it's, of course, much more intelligent to, to also think of um, demand reduction. Um, and I think demand reduction, in, in especially in the building sector, is, is pretty easy because we know how to do it. it that's, I don't think it's a technical problem. I mean, we, we have the strategies. It it's, it's needs to be done. It needs to be financed. We need to have trained people to, to do it physically. But I think the, the, the path is pretty clear. So it, that, that should definitely be a, the, always the first step to reduce the demand and, and then move towards renewable supply. But, but yeah, I, I think to a large extent it will be electric in future. Yeah, I agree. It is not that simple. We definitely need to reduce demand. But to make it even more complicated, we also need to think about the life cycle carbon of the, of the project if it's a retrofit. Um, so if we had all the time in the world, you could do whatever you wanted. But if, you know, if you're going to replace a pretty good envelope with, say, a brand new envelope that's high performance, you need to think about the materials that are going into it. Because if you emit, um, you know, a a ton, not a literal ton of, of emissions producing that envelope and installing it. And it's going to take you 150 years to pay it off in your, in your, you know, carbon savings from switching fuels, then it's arguably not worth it. And then, you know, there are all kinds of material um, options. There's, um, there's lots of research out there on, you know, what kind of low carbon materials you can use for building envelope retrofits, but it's, it's, um, you know, it's difficult with big buildings because you're sort of limited to curtain wall systems, for example. You know, it's much easier if you're, if you're dealing with houses and you can use, um, you know, natural materials for, for insulation. But I think that that is an important piece of this puzzle that is, um, I mean, it, it makes a hard problem harder, unfortunately, but it is, it is the same problem and we can't ignore it. So we can't, you know, we can't be... Um, penalizing ourselves today and, and sort of uh, pushing up the, the, um, the emissions that are in the atmosphere to a level that definitely makes us not able to hit net zero by 2050. So um, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to think about this stuff when you know, emissions are, are invisible and free and they just go up in the air and sort of blow away. But um, you know, now we know the consequences of that and we sort of can't ignore it. You know, a, uh, a brand new triple glazed curtain wall system or something that is maybe produced in uh, Eastern Europe or who knows, uh, maybe, maybe China or maybe, you know, assembled in various places. It's, it's got a long path around, around the globe. And when it finally gets installed here, you know, it could be, it could be a century long payback in terms of carbon. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be building high performance because we definitely should, but, but uh, in terms of uh, retrofits, it, uh, it makes it even, even more complicated.
Can I add to this? Because I, 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 maybe a year ago I read this like beautiful article saying, oh yeah, like there's all these claims around like being net zero operational, but actually all our buildings are wrapped in uh, fossil fuel, which I thought it was a really good embodiment or like visualization of like what we're doing to our buildings. Uh, and granted, like all the buildings that are already built, uh, they already have that embodied building stored. So it's like it's best not to, to mess too much with it, but, but obviously you should look for natural, recycled, reclaimed, you know, uh, bio-based types of uh, materials. And there, there are, there, the construction industry is trying very hard to move in that, uh, in that direction. Like the steel industry is, is, is looking very much into, into some of these solutions. Concrete and cement is like a huge player. So there's all these different kinds of companies left and right that are actually looking at absorbing carbon. So not just electrification, moving steel from, you know, uh, combustible like furnaces to like electric, um, electric air furnaces. No, but actually like absorbing carbon in the process. And, and so I'm, I'm sure everyone's familiar with that. Um, I'm going to try to, so that's why I wanted to turn it a little bit more into an opportunity because there is movement uh, into that. But electrification, I was, I was sitting with a power engineer in a, in a meeting with a client uh, a couple of years ago, and we were like, oh yeah, you need to electrify, like that is the solution. And then he was like, after that, he called me, he's like, Afaf, like, what are you doing? Like, you're just giving like short-term solutions and the utilities aren't going to, um, to match up very soon. So you need to, obviously, I think where everyone here is clear is that you have to respect the abatement hierarchy. I'm not going to repeat it again. But fundamentally and unfor unfortunately, no one here in this room today, including myself, um, is willing to actually reduce. I'm not willing to close my home living in a suburb and go live somewhere in like an earth, earth ship or something like that. Fundamentally, no one's willing to actually go back. Fundamentally, if you're talking about uh, private or public companies, they care about growth and expansion. And that is a fundamental need for profit. But no one's actually willing to reduce drastically. We're always just looking for alternatives and solutions to, oh, how do we make ourselves feel better about what we're doing while continuing to grow? Because that is the reality. We're always going to grow. Um, so I think what might happen in the short term is yes, people are going to electrify and then the utilities are going to cap out and then they're going to, which they're already doing and they're already offering these incentives left and right on how to reduce demand. And Ontario has this global adjustment uh, rate uh, on like, if you are one of the highest contributors in the coldest or the hottest uh, summer summer winter days, then you pay a lot more than, than your average person next door uh, who had a better demand response plan. Um, but fundamentally, I think that's what the shift's going to happen. People are going to electrify first, and then they're going to be like, oh, no, this is not going to continue because the utilities are going to keep rising. And there's social implications with building more dams, obviously, especially in Quebec uh, and everywhere. Um, but then what people are going to do is they're going to look into diversifying the electricity grid and growing that slowly uh, while reducing their demand. I think that's probably where it's going to go. Would you like yeah, with respect to, <clears throat> excuse me, electrification. Um, yeah, I think it, it, it needs to be done, but it matters how it's done. I spoke earlier about resource efficient electrification. So you, you have to look at the limitations of the building, the service, uh, the electrical service that the building has, uh, because you can't just, you know, grab your boiler and put in an electric boiler. Um, you know, and it might work in some, <clears throat> excuse me, in some places, but uh, for the most part, it's uh, it's not a simple plug and play. So it, it, you need to look at a, at a collection of measures 
that are going to help. So things that reduce your load, like you know, load shifting uh, measures, as well as you know LED measures, uh, things that will reduce your electrical load so that you have more room for uh, for a new electrical demand in the winter that uh, was previously uh, gas but also reducing the load so that uh, the, the heat pump can be right size. So you don't, you don't, you know, you don't um, replace uh, a, th a thousand MBH uh, of, of boiler with a thousand MBH of, of heat pump. It, it, would, it's, it, it doesn't make financial sense, but a very important thing that's going to, um, to drive the, the implementation of retrofits like heat pumps is the cost of electricity. Uh, and how it relates to the cost of the alternatives uh, gas. So, if the ratio of the of the uh, the cost of electricity over the cost of gas is similar or greater to that than the COP of a heat pump, then you're breaking even at best, or uh, actually not saving anything. So it will be a, a, a no payback um, measure. So uh, mechanisms like carbon pricing, leveling up, uh, incentivizing the use of one fuel over the other. Yeah, I totally, I totally agree on that. And uh, closing off this very interesting session, uh, we learned a lot about the, the obstacles and opportunities that lie ahead in the built environment uh, sector in order to decarbonize. Uh, I surely want to, to thank all my panelists and your thoughts, your time, and uh, accepting to, to speak today. I'm very honored with that. Uh, I also want to thank uh, the Public Scholar Program uh, and the Next Generation Cities Institute for all the support from my colleagues uh, for this. And surely this is only a step of discussing the issues, but we have a long way to, to decarbonize our, our uh, communities and built environment. So I hope you enjoyed the, the discussion and have a great rest of your day. If you have an idea for a podcast, please let us know. You can contact us by email at info.for at concordia.ca or find us on social media at CU4thSpace. All social media is managed by Jacqueline Wexler. This episode of the 4th Space podcast is hosted by me, Maximus Delmar, and produced by Anna Vaklavec and Douglas Moffat. Editing by myself, Douglas Moffat, and Chanel Lees Marshall. Additional thanks to Supercontinent for providing our theme music. Thanks for listening.